0: Ezra 1, 1 to 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus king of Persia brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, his treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah, and this was the number of them 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and of silver were 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Let's pray together. God, as we come to your word, we're reminded... how good you are in giving your word to us, to teach us, to guide us, that we might know who you are and how it is we should live in response. And so we pray, humbly asking that as we come to your word, you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in it, that you would change us, shape us, mold us, even now through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years back, I was leading a mission trip in Costa Rica. Now, I had never been to Costa Rica. In fact, I hadn't flown on a plane in many, many years, and it was the first time I'd really been out of the country. I barely spoke any Spanish at all, and I was very unsure of what to expect. I was going to be meeting um, some of our ministry partners there and working with a local church to do a project in the community alongside members of these church. And uh, joining me was a team I was supposed to be leading, coming from a youth group in another part of the country who I had only met over the phone, and I was supposed to be leading this trip. I was nervous. But our ministry partners had promised that they had everything set up for us. But did they? They? a place to stay, a project to do, the right connections to have, a mode of transportation to get there. I wasn't sure. What I was thinking was, I'm not sure, I don't know. But as I got there, sure enough, they did have things set up. I was able to meet these ministry partners. I was able to drive a long way out to a small town, to the church that had a dirt floor. Not much like I expected, but sure enough, what they had promised had come through. They had been at work behind the scenes, setting everything up. And the trip accomplished its purpose. We had a time of meaningful ministry in the community alongside this local church. And many of the students that I was leading the trip for had spiritual growth. It was a reminder that God was at work even though I couldn't see it. His purposes were accomplished. By the time we get to the start of the book of Ezra, God's people had found themselves in a desperate situation. We get the backstory of all of this in Second Chronicles where we see just how bad things had gotten among God's people. Their kings had failed them. They'd led the people in ways that did not honor the Lord. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they refused to listen to the prophets of the Lord who were calling them to repentance, as at least most of the kings did. And near the end of Second Chronicles, in chapter 36, we learn that one of these kings, King Zedekiah, who was the young king who was reigning in Jerusalem at the time, did what was evil in God's sight, as many of these other kings had done before him. He didn't listen to Jeremiah, the, the prophet that God had sent to them to call the people to repentance. And more, what's more yet, King Zedekiah rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, the most powerful man in the world. And adding to all of this, it wasn't just King Zedekiah. In fact, all, even of the officers of the priests, these spiritual leaders, the people as well were all unfaithful to the Lord, following the ways of the nations around them. And even though God persisted in sending messengers to call the people back to himself, calling them to repentance, the people kept on mocking the messengers and resisting God. And so, as we see in Second Chronicles 36, 16, the people did this until the wrath of the Lord rose up against his people, until there was no remedy. So God brought up King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. He brought him up against Jerusalem, and Nebuchadnezzar took the city, and he killed many, young and old, and he destroyed the walls of the city and raided the temple, God's house. And he took the vessels of the temple that were used for worship, and he brought them back to Babylon, and he burned the temple and destroyed the city. Many of the people who escaped being killed were brought into exile in Babylon. And so by the end of 2 Chronicles, we have God's city raided, God's house destroyed, and God's people in exile. What were God's people to do now? Psalm 137 gives us a sense of the, the hopelessness that they probably felt, the despair that they had. Psalm 137, verses 1 to 4 say, By the waters of Babylon there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Weeping. Despair. Suffering, wondering. Had God forgotten his promises to his people that he would be their God and that they would be his people? Was God so angry with them that it was finally all over, that maybe, just maybe, they'd finally exhausted God's patience and loving kindness? Was God even at work for his people's good anymore? God's people ever again have reason to praise him? How should we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is our backdrop as we enter into the storyline of Ezra. You can see this. If you flip one page back in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles 36, you'll see that the, the last two verses of 2 Chronicles are nearly identical with the first few verses of Ezra. So this is where our story picks up. The backdrop we have, God's city taken, his house destroyed, his people taken away into exile in Babylon. What was God doing in all of this? How was God at work? How could his people trust him in all of this? Would he ever bring revival and renewal? So the book of Ezra is the story of God's sovereign plan to restore his people in his place for his glory. It's a story of restoration, of revitalization, of renewal as his people return to his city to build his temple again. And as we dive into chapter 1, we're introduced to some of the major elements and themes of the book as a whole. But in these verses, we'll see that God's purpose can be trusted since he keeps his promise. There are three major things that these verses, chapter 1, brings out for us. There's promise, providence, and praise. Because God's purpose can be trusted since he keeps his promise. So the first thing we see in the book of Ezra is a promise. In fact, we can see that God keeps his promise. At the start of the book, verse 1, it's where God's promise comes through. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up Cyrus, king of Persia. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. And so we're brought back to the ministry of Jeremiah, the prophet, which would have spanned the decline of the southern kingdom of Judah and all the way even to the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the exile that followed He was calling God's people to repentance again and again, but was rejected and spurned. And eventually, Jeremiah prophesied that God would raise up Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to bring the people into exile for 40 years as a judgment on their sin. And as we read through some of these passages in Jeremiah, it's not entirely clear exactly how these 70 years should be taken. It's possible it represents a span between 605 B.C., when the Babylonians first took some exiles into Babylon, and then to 536 B.C., when the first exiles would have arrived back in Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's possible. It's also possible that the 70 years are being used more generally as a standard unit of a lifetime? Whatever the case, though, it's clear from Ezra 1-1 that in a specific time of history, God remembered his promise and he fulfilled it. There are a few key passages in Jeremiah that that speak to this promise of exile and restoration in Jeremiah 25 verses 8 to 12. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for their iniquity, declares the Lord promised to bring his people into exile because of their hardened hearts and rebellion by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar for 70 years. And again, in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 to 14, another instance of this comes up. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future, and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile promise of exile for 70 years and then a return to their land. And it's incredible that Jeremiah 29, 11, one of the most famous verses in all the Bible, is rooted in this prophecy. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. We know the words to bring them into exile that they might repent and come back to the Lord. And after 70 years, be restored. In one more place in Jeremiah 51, verses 1 and then in verse 11, thus says the Lord, behold, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon. The Lord has stirred up the spirit of the kings of the Medes, the Persians, because his purpose concerning Babylon is to destroy it. For that is the vengeance of the Lord, the vengeance for his temple. The Lord's stirring up work To fulfill his promise in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. And he made a decree that God's people could return from exile to God's city to rebuild God's temple. God kept his promise. I wonder if you're struggling to believe in one of God's promises this evening. Yes, I know that God has promised that he will one day make all things new and that he will reign as king, but the world around me seems to be getting worse, not better. Is he unable to do it? Yes, I know he promises to provide for my daily needs, but there's just not enough money coming in. Where is his provision? Has he forgotten? Yes, I know God promised that he sees my tears and he knows my pain, but I just don't feel his presence right now. Has he brushed me aside? It may take years, even 70 years, maybe even a lifetime. But God never fails. He always keeps his promises. Promise and providence. In his sovereignty, God providentially works out his plans in the world to fill his pur- purpose. There's promises and God's providence. One of the most incredible things in this passage is how its events are clearly described, not simply as random happenstance, but rather as a clear and purposeful action on the part of God. It's not as if God saw things happening and thought, I can use that, but rather, God was the one who did it. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. God stirred him up. And again, in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and rebuild the house of the Lord. God stirred up Cyrus. He stirred up his people. God was the one who was at work in all of this. And even more than that, this is exactly what God had been working toward for a long time, long before the events of Ezra 1 took place, and even before the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah that we just looked at, God was providentially working to this moment of restoration and reinvigoration of his people. We get a glimpse of this in the book of Isaiah and his prophecy as he describes God's plan to stir up a leader who would free the exiles. Isaiah 41 Verses 2 and 4, Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. Again, in Isaiah 41, verses 25 and 27, I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar. I was the first to say to Zion, Behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. And again, in Isaiah forty-five thirteen, I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or rewards, says the Lord of hosts. There's one God was stirring up, and who was it that Isaiah was speaking of? Isaiah forty-four twenty-eight and 15. Tell us, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying, Of Jerusalem she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Almost 200 years before Jeremiah's prophecy in the exile happened itself, the Lord was at work. In his providence, raising up, stirring up a leader who would free his people from exile. Because while Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had a policy with nations that they took over that they would deport people from their homeland to keep them from rising up and stifle any insurrection, Cyrus was different. Rather than deporting people away and stopping out rebellion, he preferred to gain favor with people by allowing his subjects to return to their homelands, to reestablish their cities, and even to rebuild the temples of their gods. This was his method of operations. This is how he worked. And this was the ruler God was stirring up. A pagan king in Persia to come to power at the right time to defeat Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians who'd enslaved and deported God's people to a foreign land. A ruler whose foreign policy was to allow people to return to their homelands, reestablish their cities, and encouraging them to rebuild their temples. His decree was to allow God's people to go, to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and even for people to provide the needed materials and animals for the task. Silver and gold, goods, beasts, free will offerings. Amazing, isn't it? And of course, God even stirred up some from within his own people to go. The heads of houses of the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin and also the tribe of Levi because they would have, priests would have been necessary for temple worship. God stirred them up too. And the stirred up people were sent on their way, loaded with everything they needed on their way to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. In his providence, God was at work. I wouldn't have planned the story that way. (laughs) Would you? In my own wisdom, I would never have guessed that this was the way God would restore and revive his people. Exile in Babylon? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And our rescue is from a pagan king? But sure enough, God knew. And even more, He was sovereignly working all these things for His glory and His people's good. Just the other week, my wife and I had our AC go out. And of course, it was one of those 90 degree days. Isn't that, of course, when it's going to happen? And our AC went out. And in my infinite wisdom, I go and look at it and um, see that it's not working and uh, that's about all I know about it. I can look at the circuit breaker on our wall to make sure the power is still working. There are no breakers that are are flipped over, and that's about it. I've got nothing else. (laughs) So we had to call in an HVAC tech who was able to come in and open up the units, and he knew all of the intricate details of the way these things worked. He was able to take out the parts that were broken and replace them with things that worked. And he was able to see all of these things. I was only able to see a small little picture. Air is not coming through. (laughs) But someone who knew was able to see the whole picture. God's the one who knows the whole picture. And what's more, he is making it happen. You might be looking out at our society and wondering how in the world God could be work at work considering the things you see that are going on. It seems to be a mess at times, doesn't it? Where's God in all this kind of thing? And of course we need, we, we, we look at our politics and our education, we look in families and businesses and we see that things are not as they should be. And of course, we need Christians in politics and in education and in our families and in our businesses. Of course, we need Christians there, but as we look around at our society and we look at our world and we see the brokenness and the mess and the challenges and the ways that our society and our world do not honor the Lord, as we look at those things and we think, how in the world could God be at work in this? Things are not as they should be. We don't need to fear. Because God is in control. And he is sovereignly, providentially working. Even if we don't see it. Because it wasn't really Nebuchadnezzar who was in control, was it? And it wasn't really Cyrus who was in control. It's not really our city government who's in control, is it? Or our schools, or our state government, or our national government, or world leaders. They're not the ones who are really in charge. God is in control. He is the one who is providentially working in all of this. And in his providence, he raised up a pagan king to free his enslaved people. And Of course, he's used godly people too. Because God works in mysterious ways. And so we can trust him. Even if we don't understand. We don't have to be afraid. He's at work in it all. The hymn writer William Cooper put it well. He wrote, God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform, he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. God's in control. Of course, it doesn't mean it's always going to be easy. Things so often, maybe even usually, don't happen as we expect may not be the timeline we desire. It very well may not be in the way we imagined it would be. But we don't need to fear because God is at work. Just as God fulfilled his promise to bring his people out of slavery in Babylon and he did so by his providential work in history, it's the same for us personally as well. Because for the Christian... It's not our guilty hearts that reign. It's not our flaws or our failures that will win the day. We're reminded by the Apostle Paul that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because in Jesus Christ, all God's promises find there, yes. And in his providence, at the right time, he provided Jesus Christ for us. That whoever believes in him would have their sins forgiven. Be called a child of God, a daughter, a son of the reigning king. And we are free to trust him. And the promise of Romans 8.28 for the Christian is a wonderful promise that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. He's at work for you. And so it doesn't mean that things will be easy. But it does mean that God is for you. And you can trust him. How many reasons do we, this side of the cross, have to trust in God? He's a God who keeps his promises, a God who works by his providence. Promise, providence, and praise. God's promise and his providence ultimately work together that we might praise him. As I was studying this passage, I was struck by how Ezra 1 ends in an interesting way. (laughs) At least that's what I thought when I first sat down and started studying it because verses 1 to 4 get this fulfillment of God's promise to bring his people out of exile through a decree from King Cyrus, okay? Verses 5 and 6 make sense. God's people will be stirred up for this monumental task of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem, but then it ends with a list of bowls and basins, What of that? (laughs) Well, we're reminded in verse 7 that Nebuchadnezzar had brought these vessels of the house of the Lord out from the temple when he took the city of Jerusalem. And we don't know exactly what each of these vessels were for, but they were certainly items that were to be used in temple worship. And when Nebuchadnezzar took a city... His policy, generally, was to take the idol, the the figure of that city's God, and bring it back to his city and put it in the temple of his God to show its subservience to his God. But since in Jerusalem there was no carved image, he brought the vessels of the temple, the things that were used in the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel. And he brought them back to Babylon and put them in the temple of his God to show that the Lord was weaker than his God. Or so he thought. And we read that there were quite a lot of these. 5,400. And if you notice, you might have noticed that those numbers that are listed of the the items that are detailed out don't quite add up to 5,400. But it seems most likely that the ones detailed out are the most important. And there were others that added up to this large number, 5,400. And there were many of them. Gold, silver, and they're given to the Persian emperor treasurer, Mithridath, who hands them over to Sheshbazar, who was a Jew with a Babylonian name, who, was, who brought them up to Jerusalem. All these items, that were to be used in the temple for worship. For 70 years, God's people were away from their city. No temple. Unable to worship fully. Sure, they were worshiping God as they could, but there were no sacrifices, no true temple worship. But now, this God keeps his promise. And in his divine providence, the people are sent to rebuild the temple. And not just sent with everything they would need to build the structure, but also to worship. Animals, uh, all these temple artifacts that would be needed to worship God rightly... In the temple. God was sending these people out so that they might praise Him. I think it's significant that the very first thing that's built in Jerusalem, we see it in chapter 3, is the altar to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Because God didn't just want a people in their place, He wanted a people who would praise. What about you? Would you praise him this evening? Because there are certainly times when it seems like God has forgotten his promise, but we're reminded that he keeps them. And there certainly are challenges that rise up around us in our personal lives, in the world, in the culture around us, but we serve a God who works in his providence, who keeps his promises with the purpose that his people might be reinvigorated rejuvenated, revived, restored, that they might praise his name. Would you praise him for all that he's done? The promise keeper, providence worker who is worthy of our praise. Would you praise him in our homes, in our friendships, in our work, in our city, even in our church? we can indeed trust God. He has a wonderful purpose to restore his people and he does it by keeping his promises, working in his providence that we might praise his name. Let's pray together. God, we're reminded in Ezra 1 of just how good of a God you are. (laughs) That you don't forget your promises, you keep them. That you don't stand idly by, you work in your providence And we're reminded of just how worthy of praise you are. Please help us, Lord, to be people who desire to praise you with our lips and with our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.